Matthew thirteen forty seven to 50 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just stare at the last five words, as Billy pointed out earlier. You know, I stare at those last five words because even though there's a parable full of content, there's so many metaphors and analogies that Jesus refers to. I can't but not look at those last five words and stare at judgment and then get sad about it now. Why I say that is behind those five words are other words. Words told by people often standing in front of pulpits like these. Often with a bit of conviction, a bit of charisma. Often with a large microphone or perhaps a bullhorn. And they're talking about how this faith journey is all about those five words. It's, it's only about those five words and avoiding those five words. There's people behind, you know, in front of pulpits and in front of bullhorns speak of only two roads when they talk about faith in this life journey. They talk on the one hand of a life lived well towards righteousness and the other, as this illustrates, the fiery furnace that was talked about in a very small tangential way. But nonetheless, a, a journey that may not necessarily be lived out well. And these two places are oceans, the solar systems apart. And yet behind these two roads are a whole bunch, from what I've seen, a whole bunch of standards. And that gets me sad. I see a need to live in this radical manner beyond myself, whether that's in doing, whether that's in being, and try as I might, there's always an instance where it doesn't work out. There's always an instance where I'm not enough, and I see that I'm not enough, and I feel the guilt of being not enough. All I seem to see internally is the things I don't do, and I feel like this God we serve will only see those things. And so surely then I end up back at these two roads, and end up on the fiery side as opposed to the righteous side. And while that just gets me kind of sad, so the question then is, why am I talking about this parable? <laughs> well, the reason why I'm talking about this parable, that yes, that has made me sad, is that... When Jesus speaks, I don't believe he wants us to hear the same things we've always heard. When we come to parables and stories like these, we can come in into a service and come into our scriptures and our Bible and sort of reiterate the same things we've always heard. And I'm just not sure if that was the intent. We've called this series over the last two months, Wrestling with Wonder. Now, why we've used those two words is that we want to wrestle as we had the last few weeks, as we are going to do with these parables, what questions are there? What challenges are there? And what can we ask God in the midst of I don't know and in the mystery? And then at the same time, we talk about wonder. I mean, these boxes in front of us have told us stories of parables amongst us all, amongst kids. 
and we've seen the joy in the kids' faces as they've gotten their hands dirty with the stories and made this alive. And I think there's something in me that's been inspired by this wonder, by coming to these stories anew, that maybe there is something new even here tonight. Because when I think about the word that I use for sadness, you know, I want to believe that I can look at this parable, and this is how I prepared for it, and look at this parable without sadness. Yes, there is judgment. The five words are pretty clear, and we'll get to that a bit later on. But I think there's something we can see here that encompasses what who Jesus is. Yes, he's justice and he's hope. Yes, he's judgment. But he's also loving. And he's also proclaiming a story that tells to this day of restoration and reconciliation and shalom. And so I'm hoping that tonight we can take a moment to step from the words that we've had, no matter what they were, to see maybe something a little different, something a little new, all through a parable well of a dragnet, of all things. Jesus uses the dragnet once. In his entire ministry, he refers to this dragnet once. A net many meters wide, held up on one sense for buoyancy with these cork weights, but a grid of material falls below, with lead holding the bottom down in the depths of the sea. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm, I'm not a great fisherman, I've done, and things have happened before and it just haven't ended well. I think I've had more tangled rods than I have anything else. But I have used a dragnet once, a small one, maybe waist high and maybe kind of a couple of pillars over in terms of width, sitting there as a teenager with family friends in the Kapiti Coast. We, were, we unfilled this net, we went out to the shore, went in with these two wooden poles, with three people either side for something that was pretty lightweight, but when we got in the water we found out why. Anyway, we go in and we're making sure that we're keeping this on the ground, spend an hour out there, and then we come in. And some interesting things we found in our net coming in. There was sea junk, a bit of debris, some cans, some junk, some seaweed, all the rest of it. There was thankfully a couple of fish, thankfully a couple of crabs, and weirdly a stingray managed to get caught. That was fun, that was fun cooking later on. What was interesting is that we did all this work, put this net out, had a whole bunch of people go out to seal this net, and we basically amounted to maybe a mouthful of food supplemented by a rather hefty fish and chip takeaway dinner at that night with family friends. So it was a bit, a bit ironic that we needed other people to catch our fish for us. <laughs> but nonetheless, even with a net, you know, waist high, a few metres wide, and sitting there for half an hour, an hour, we still caught stuff. We still caught a variety of things, actually. And we talk about Jesus and first century fishing in the Sea of Galilee. We're talking a net maybe, is, maybe almost as high as this water mat, maybe a few hundred feet wide. It's going to catch a whole lot of stuff. And basically, you're going to have situations where these sea creatures, you know, these eels and crustaceans and fish life in the water, are going to see this net. They're going to do one or two things. They're either going to be stuck, or in the case of Nemo, stuck. Now, why I bring up that in, in this net is that, and in a weird, this is a weird concept, but I'm going to go through anyway, that, 
the net catch is all types of fish. It doesn't discriminate based on what type of fish it is, how young it is, perhaps, how big it is. The net catches a lot. And so Jesus, speaking from a boat, mind you, in Matthew 13, and speaking seven parables, of which this is the last one, talks to the audience on the shore and compares the kingdom of heaven to this dragnet that catches all kinds of fish. And that must be another statement, but if we take that back slightly about this net, it doesn't discriminate. And in the same way, when we hear this undercurrent of judgment, which I'll get to later on, and we think about, in first century times, there's the Greeks and the Romans who have a ruling power. There's the Pharisees who have this religious power. There's slave and free, there's sinners across the board, some who claim that, some who don't. And nowadays we have these hierarchies where people have resources and power and choose to use it in a way that isn't necessarily equitable or fair to those without. And yet, when it comes to talking about things like judgment, the dragnet's the dragnet. It ain't going to discriminate. There's no privilege, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card. It, it is what it is, we all... The statement of Jesus making about the dragnet essentially is being caught. And so I wonder what that says about God's kingdom. And I wonder what that says about the people that heard the message on, from the boat that day. And I wonder how that reaches us. Now, of course, you go out fishing and the intent is to actually eat the fish, not just catch it. And so we continue this parable. The fishermen returned to shore only when their net was full. Why would you go back, why would you go back into shore if you had more capacity to catch a few extra fish? Yet at the same time, you don't judge a fisherman's catch based on how heavy your net is. You judge it based on how many fish you have that will be valuable to others that can be sold and can be eaten. So the fishermen return to shore. They sit down in the sand. And they grow a basket. On one side. Grow a basket. They look, they see all the contents of their net. Or the sea junk most likely. And the other creatures that are having to be caught. And have a look and see what will be kept in the baskets for later keeping, for later sale, and what perhaps goes to be chucked. Doesn't have, may not have value. Now, when we went out fishing, and when anyone goes out fishing, of course, you're kind of subject to MPI, and um, weight scales, and rulers, and numbers of fish you catch in a given day. And for first century fishermen, they reviewed their catch based on Levitical law. The fish had to have fins and scales to be kept here. It had to be clean, edible, and marketable to go in here. And so you'd imagine these fishermen looking through the screeds of fish at the end of the day and seeing which of them met all the little things, all the little pieces of criteria, I suppose, to fall into here. And yet 
you wouldn't think they're holding a checklist down. There's something intuitive about deciding what goes in the basket and what may not. And what's interesting is when we think through all the parables, we haven't, we haven't talked about them all tonight, but some of them are behind me in godly play. One of the other parables Jesus shares from the boat is one of a, of a grain grower who sees weeds grow in with his grain, decides to keep them both growing at the same time, and cuts them at harvest. I'd imagine the grain grower would be doing a similar thing, of checking through all his grain, checking through to find the grain that's to be kept and the weeds that are to be chucked. He'd see them all. You wouldn't make an assumption at that time. You would see them all. And so just as the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus would say, is based on a grain grower separating grain, or for that matter, a fisherman separating the fish in the net. He then interprets this in verse 49 and talks about the angels separating these words of the righteous and the wicked. And what I wonder is whether it's fair to translate these, these ideas of seeing and hearing and, and touching to find the people from the angel's perspective that will go one way rather than the other. Perhaps the angels are looking for value. I mean, before the net, Jesus talks about the hidden treasure for people that find this hidden treasure and sell what they have, who find the, who find the pearl and keep it. might those the other way around. But nonetheless, the people that have found this hidden gem and made the most of keeping it. And so as opposed to looking at appearances or words, maybe these angels at the end time are looking at everything about an individual before deciding which way they go. And maybe it's intuitive. Maybe there, maybe there isn't a checklist or a criteria in the same way of the fisherman, in the same way of the grain grower. I find this idea of being seen interesting. It's something that I've picked up upon, kind of thought about yesterday, because I wonder what it would mean to be seen at that point, at that end time, both now and then in that particular moment. Now, of course, you don't just separate a fish for nothing. There's a conclusion, right? I mean, unfortunately, I have to end back at the five words that make me sad. These five words are weeping and gnashing of teeth. These words that, for my eyes, just look purely like judgment. Now, one of the theologians that Justin and I have been looking through and preparing for this series is Colin Snodgrass. And we get to this quote that he sees through the parable of the dragnet that there's a need to recover a healthy understanding of judgment, which undeniably was a central feature of Jesus' message. It's clear that given the sadness and melancholy that I feel to this parable, that perhaps I don't have the healthiest understanding of judgment. And maybe the crowds who heard Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't just proclaim those five words. He was talking about the kingdom of heaven in so many other ways. I mean, as we've talked about in Godly Play, people will follow Jesus because of the amazing things he said the wonderful things he did, 
the care and love he had for all his created being. I mean, we've spent the early part of this year talking through the Beatitude, and I would find it rather strange if Jesus were to bless the poor in spirit and then, well, mercilessly judge them in the other end through statements like this. And I think we see the same message if that's the case. But perhaps the crowd know already about judgment. Perhaps the crowd know already that there's a need for a way, a new way, out. And they come to hear Jesus talk about this kingdom and see a way. Because ultimately, what's the need for being saved in our journey if there isn't a judgment? And I mean, even this parable, right? Like, just look at it in terms of text. You've got five words at the end of it. And you have three quarters, if not more so, talking about what the kingdom is like. That the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is this process of catching, this process of coming onto shore and separating just as much as it is about this idea. Well, not really an idea, this reality of this end time of judgment. Every parable, it seems, that Jesus spoke about, especially from the boat, talks about this process, the kingdom being yeast that grows exponentially, the kingdom being seed that grows a hundred times, or even more than that in terms of the mustard seed, than what it was initially. And yet he also speaks of the pearl and the treasure and then the grain that separated from the weeds, the fish that is caught and separated. There's a promise, there's an ordinariness, there's something mundane yet beautiful, and yet there's also a warning, and it seems from what I see it, that the kingdom is all of those things, all at the exact same time. And it's encouraging to me, because if the kingdom was only judgment without the promise, then people could be coerced and guilted into a faith journey without discovering the wonder and the reason why. And even to say that if people believed in the promise without the, without the judgment, would there be a sense of naivety? Possibly. So in saying all this, in saying through these four verses, Jesus asked the question, are you starting to get a handle on all this? To his disciples. Now, mind you, most of the descriptions and the translations talk about do you understand all things, but a rhetorical question is easier for the message sometimes, just a little bit. And so we finish this whole time in Matthew 13 with verse 52, where Jesus says, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. There's this new way of firstly understanding that comes to the fore through, this, through these descriptions, through these metaphors of the kingdom, where promises are held just as much as warnings. They're held together at the same time. And perhaps that is wisdom, holding up new treasures as well as old. And through this narrative of separating fish from a dragnet in this parable, and the angels coming in to use that analogy, 
for what could happen later on. We perhaps can see this little bit extra of a picture of maybe what Jesus intended from the kingdom. So it's pretty much me. But what I'm curious about now and what I wonder is what word comes to mind now? I mean, we heard the parable in in its word straight initially and asked for a word. What word comes up now? I know for me, the, as I prepared for the last week on this topic, it isn't necessarily sadness anymore because of this mystery that underlies this judgment and the hope that comes through it as well. So what we're going to do is we've got, we've got a couple of questions, but firstly I'm going to ask us to write down a thought, a, maybe a feeling, maybe a word that I've said that resounds at this point. And then quietly we'll get into small groups, two or threes, and we'll see how we go. And kind of talk through these two questions. One of them is comparing those two words. Is it different? Is it similar? Or or the other one is talking about the series of wrestling and wondering. Are there bits of this parable that you wrestle with? Maybe they're similar to mine. Maybe they aren't. Or perhaps, what do you find wonder with? And we'll come back together and we'll dialogue and we'll go from there. So that's me. So thanks, everybody.